there is a truth which must out. And Charlotte, with her insatiably curious mind, she says at one point, I was more curious than frightened. And I think that's the triumph and that's the energy, right? Is if we can keep our curiosity just a bit ahead of our fear, we're going to be okay. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the actor, playwright, and novelist, Anne-Marie MacDonald. Her new novel, Fane, is a work of historical fiction about a young person, Charlotte, her father, Henry, a painting of Charlotte's late mother, an infant brother, and a secret that lies between them all. Or at least, that's my spoiler-free description of this wonderful novel. Anne-Marie MacDonald, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much, Michael. It is so great to have you here. It is so great to have a new book by Anne-Marie MacDonald in our hands. That's something that, you know, the interval between these is not, you know, is not insignificant sometimes. Is is sort of the gestation process around a new novel for you a long thing, or is it just there's work that happens in between? Well, I think it is a combination. Gestation is a really important part of things. I think that there is a time arc during which a whole lot can happen in the psyche. You know, the flotsam and jetsam and all the little, the, the, you know, the little bits of, of diamonds and pearls that, that float by. And it takes time for those to, to settle and be recognized and sifted through, you know. So I think time works its own kind of magic. And I usually... I, I, I do tend to work in tandem on projects. You know, I, I worked on Fane, um, you know, for the better part of six years, but on and off with a, a play called Hamlet 911, which is actually running as we speak at the Stratford Festival mm-hmm. in true post in true post pandemic style projects, which were to have come to fruition sequentially in an orderly <laughs> fashion are of course simultaneous. We should be so lucky to have these problems. However, yeah. But yes, the gestation process is really important. I also, you know, once I know that I have uh, a character or an image or a time and a place, some kind of, it's usually an image. Once I know that it's alive, then I like to take time to investigate that picture. And, and that directs my research. I ask, I ask a lot of questions of my, of anyway, I don't want to get mm-hmm. ahead of myself, but Good, because I'm going to come back to to that research in a moment. This new novel is called Fane, and it starts with kind of a tourist brochure, you know, the kind that we might you know, glance over if we you know, visited a historical estate on the border of Scotland and England. But I'll ask you, you know, what is or what was Fane? Well, Fane is, uh, in a sort of a tongue-in-cheek way, it's referred to as a stateless home. And it's a mansion. It's a lonely mansion on a windswept moor, which I like to say, it's almost redundant. Is there any other kind? But it is, it's lonely. It's stark. It is for me, one of the most extraordinarily beautiful kinds of landscapes in the world. Um, So you have this big, lonely manor house. And yes, it begins with this brochure. And I modeled that on the literature that accompanies visits to 
stately homes, you know, in the UK. And uh, Thane, of course, is my creation, as is the estate that straddles the border between England and Scotland, such that it is in both and neither. It is two things at the same time. So this is all completely fictional. And Fane is a name that came to me, F-A-Y-N-E. And then I thought, why that? And I thought, well, that's a gift of the fairy because Fae, the word Fae is in there, um, which of course has to do with fairy. Fane means I would like, I would fain, you know, in the Shakespearean sense, I would fain have a glass of mead. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Um, and then also Fane means to pretend something. I think you feign, uh, you, you feigned amusement. You weren't at all amused. Mm -hmm. So there are lots and lots of different puns and evocations in that word. And it's playful and it's one syllable. And it, seems to, it seemed to me to be a portal to some place as, as indeed it was. And all of these meetings um, and the various shades of them manifest themselves over the course of the book. Before we get into that, I'd like to ask you to introduce a few of the characters. Um, at the, I'm trepidatious about letting the audience know who's going to figure in the story and how much, because <laughs> the voices that we get to hear have a lot to do with the drive of the narrative as it shifts from one person to the next. But let's keep it simple and talk about Charlotte and her father, Lord Henry. Well, at the beginning of the book, the year is 1887, and Charlotte, the Honorable Charlotte Bell, is a precocious 12-year-old, brilliant, bursting with energy kid who has been raised by her adoring widowed father, Baron Lord Henry Bell, 17th Baron of the DC de Fame. He is a doting father, He's a bird fancier. He has very sensitive eyes. And he devotes the better part of his time that, it, well, number one is Charlotte because he adores her. And number two, a close second, is not only the living birds on the moor, but really primarily bits of birds that he is reconstructing from discarded ornithological specimens and he lovingly lovingly reconstructs these dead birds and uh, he does this he has nocturnal habits his eyes are so sensitive such that for him uh, his day starts around dinner time and uh, he has to go to bed during the day because the sun is too much for him uh, so that so he has also protected his daughter who has grown up being exposed to very very few people um, nobody outside a very small household of servants and family retainers, owing to a condition, a mysterious capital C condition, which has kept her confined to the estate, within which, within whose bounds she finds herself very free. The moor is her, is her playground. And there's an old, ancient man of all work who has been her mentor thus far, but she craves more than anything to go to school. And on the occasion of her 12th birthday, her father surprises her with 
a tutor, which is unconventional in the extreme, tutors being reserved for young gentlemen, not young ladies. So um, that's really the best day of her life is close to the beginning of the book. And thereby hangs a lot of tales. A lot of tales. Yeah, she grows up in the she grows up in the shadow of this grand portrait of her beautiful mother, the American heiress Marie, Lady Marie, whom she has grown up knowing died in childbed of her Charlotte and the beloved deceased infant Charles, uh, who is the baby figured in the portrait being held by the American heiress Lady Marie. She was the uh, she's the Bostonian Irish American daughter of a captain of industry, a self-made Irish-American captain of industry, who essentially you know, brought his daughter over to the continent um, with the intention of snagging a titled uh, British aristocrat, preferably penniless, because that's the kind of match that's made in heaven. Mm-hmm. Rich American heiress, penniless blue blood. And it is a love match at the outset. Charlotte is also something of a descendant of Ada Lovelace, the computing pioneer, the fossil hunter, Mary Anning, Mary Somerville, the Scottish woman for whom apparently the word scientist was invented as an improvement on the idea of a man of science. How much were you you reaching into you know, the the history of women in science and and um and those figures as you were starting to shape this character. Oh well, that that was that's one of the most exciting and fun aspects of of my work on this book. I just can't get enough of science and the history of science and medicine and the history of medicine and the history of wellness. What do we think wellness is? What is wholeness? What is healing? Who needs to be cured? Why? Uh, How do we define one another? And um, the history of, of, of women and medicine, not just women as practitioners of medicine, but women as subjects of medicine. And there is a checkered, colorful, heavily textured, if not positively tragic and horrific history to be tapped there, particularly at the end of the 19th century, when some of the most forward thinking and progressive physicians were among the most damaging to uh, to women and children. And I find that absolutely fascinating, the marvelous intentions that go so terrifically awry and it's repeated in our in our own century of course right but that said charlotte um is very lucky to be uh, to have as her tutor a very young man who is also at first very reluctant to teach a girl and it's going to destroy his career if it gets out that he's teaching a girl my god but he is soon won over by the fact that they have so much in common. Each of them has such a hungry mind, such curiosity. And Charlotte is, I mean, she, she's such a nerd. She just geeks out on science and math in a huge and infectious, I hope, way. And I had to learn so much because she's so brilliant. I thought, oh, my God, I, I personally never I never had any competency with math but I have a fascination for it so I had to go I had to enter through the point of view of someone for whom math is music and art 
you know? And what does that feel like to have a passion for math? And so her intellectual curiosity and all of that, I thought I have to keep up with her, you know? So that was very exciting and really fun. And when he opens her eyes to the fact there have actually been a handful of women who have come before against great odds to make these marks on science, that is even more exciting for her. Even though, of course, all her role models are male and she doesn't, she really deeply doesn't understand that there will be any impediment whatsoever uh, due to her sex, right? Mm -hmm. She just doesn't understand how that could stand in, in her way at all. One of the things that she sheltered from is that, uh, is that knowledge. Big time. And then it comes as a, an immense shock at, at a number of levels. The early chapters are also a, a deep dive into everything in this region that we're set in, the Scottish marches or the, or the borderlands. Food, plants, animals, weather, uh, you know, architectural styles of buildings. Some authors are joyful and enthusiastic researchers. Some people mine out the things that they need to fill a scene. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum? I, I have to say I'm joyful. If not, like I'll just come out right now and say, okay, I totally geek out on things. <laughs> I kind of can't get enough of it, and I have to hold myself back. And you know, are there are there rabbit holes that you intentionally oh, winch yourself out of? Yes, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a kind of a Bugs Bunny thing. It's like, oh my God, I dove into the earth again, took that left turn at Albuquerque. And I go, I know I'm not supposed to turn left at Albuquerque. I did it again. But there's going to be so many interesting things along the way. Um, but that said, you know what I really try to do, what I always try to do, and certainly what I try to do with this, is immerse the reader in a world with enough cues such that they get the picture in their mind. But to do that, I, as the author need to choose those details. I need to know what that chair is called and how to describe it. I need to know what it feels like and smells like to walk into that chamber. You know, I need to know what they're eating for, for lunch. And, 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 and what is that? You know, what's on the table? The very tactile, immediate, concrete moment to moment experience right and from i and then i realize i have to be very specific because i want the reader to feel like they're inside kind of the best most delicious mini series ever you know and sure i can picture it but can i describe it oh my god i don't have the vocabulary i have to find out what this stuff is called and i have to be very judicious and drop as many things in there such that one detail sets off in the reader's mind a cascade of accompanying details mm -hmm. that they bring to it, you know? So that is the craft of it. And that's what I really, really worked toward, just to put people in the immediate sensual sensory moment at all times. But I, you know what I can tell you is that of all the, the science and the politics and the, oh God, the surgical details um, you know, it was really most challenging for me, the clothes, <laughs> the clothes, especially the women. I mean, I was a kid who drove my mother crazy because I did not want to wear quote unquote girls clothes. I did not want to wear anything scratchy or tight or anything like, you know, can I have dungarees and high tops? How comfortable can I make this? Yeah. 
and and so for me it was like I always wanted quote unquote boys clothes so that's a whole other discussion of gender and 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 mm-hmm. a compulsory gendered behavior right which of course that isn't a whole other discussion that's central that's key to fame right what are these what are these categories that we're being shoehorned into and what's the point of them um, but that said there is, of course, the character of Charlotte's mother, whom we visit. We go into the past, so we go into the romance between her parents. And her mother is an Irish-American heiress who loves fashion, loves her clothes. Okay, mm-hmm. that's her. That's May. It's like she can't have enough uh, flounces and ruffles and ruches and uh, bows and etc. right? And I thought, oh, no, I'm in for it now because clothing is intensely political clothing will say so much about character and time and place and she loves being that ultra quote-unquote ultra feminine upper-class lady and I thought I've this is she loves this therefore I have I have to love it I have to get right in here and I got to put those clothes on with her and I got to love every second and I got to know what everything's called so I can invite the reader into her boudoir while she constructs something that is so elaborate and that she's going to wear with such grace and ease. And she's so sexy and beautiful and rich and she loves it so bad. And of course, she's going to travel from that place to a very, very, very different place in the course of the story. So I also need to set that up, right? Because she is going to journey to a place that is very, very different from that place, just to put it mildly. Do you find that as you're exploring these different uh, you know, these different areas to to fill out the scenes that you're setting, do you get pulled in different places in the story as the result the result of what you're learning? Well, yes, yeah. I mean, the contrast between May's love of every detail of her hair and all the layers of her clothing and her accessories. The contrast between that sort of scene and then her daughter, who is suddenly compelled to dress in, a, in the same way, and for whom these clothes might as well be chains and fetters, right? Mm-hmm. What for May is a, is a marvelous outfit is for Charlotte an absolute prison. So that, that tells us a whole lot right there. But yes, I... I learned so much about May and her delight and her, you'd call it vanity, right? Because she's very pleased with herself. But I, I just love her for that because she's just so unapologetically who she is. And I was kind of dragged by her grumbling every step of the way, like I muttering, oh my God, how much time do I have to spend in this change room at this department store watching her try on all this goddamn fabric? And now I have to learn the names of it all. You know, I was kind of like what, like that. Remind me, what is what is organza again? Which one is that one? Jesus, yeah, exactly. And I, and I I became kind of a reluctant expert on all of this, and uh, I had to laugh at myself too because I'm still that person. Like you'd see what I'm wearing now, and you go, that's just about as far from anything May would ever be caught dead in. In fact, she would she would want to take me in hand for my own good. You know. Um, so I fell in love with her love of herself and her own beauty and her own sexuality. And of course it is, well, it's, it's bittersweet to say the least because she is not only is she following the rules, she exemplifies the rules. Right. And 
she is keeping her side of the bargain. Mm-hmm. And she crashes. And yes, there's redemption ultimately. But wow, it's like even, even when you're perfect, you don't have the power. It's all an illusion of power that she has. The power that she has over her husband and through his title and all. No, 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 no. You know what, sweetheart? He's the baron and you're not. And he owns you and you are chattel. And she's able to be very flirtatious saying, oh, I'd rather be your chattel than anything in the world. Well, yeah. And you are. You are possessed. You are property. And that's going to end badly. So that, you know, renders poignant and bittersweet. And so for me, I sort of go, oh, just let her have all her nice things for a while. (laughs) Mm. Because she's going to go through an ordeal before she comes through the other side. So you're looking for the the best looking gilded cage possible, essentially. Well, yes, exactly. And also a, a young woman who I go, yeah, I, I am also not going to uh, judge her negatively for this. I'm going to say, you go, girl. You, you know the rules. You're running with it. But, oh, dear, you actually forgot that you don't have any power. You're actually hmm. powerless. This is the story in one way of a prodigy of a girl who loves learning about the natural world as a scientist, an empiricist. But it's also a story set in the Scottish Moors, as you say, windswept always. Um, And so we expect a certain amount of gothic mystery, supernatural dread, mad women and addicts. Uh, Were you thinking about that tradition of gothic fiction? Absolutely. And what you could do with it as you put this together? Gothic fiction is never far from my thoughts. I was about 10 years old when I first read Jane Eyre. And, you know, I was also still immersed in Looney Tunes. What am I saying? I am still immersed in Looney Tunes and and Jane Eyre. These were the kind of probably the twin pillars of of my formation as a writer. Um, And that said, you know, the secrets, the sense that there is something, there is something that I don't know that I don't know. And the first step is finding out that there's something I don't know. And then it's like, I'm going to find the truth and I won't rest until I find it. And then that becomes more and more frightening. At some point, at one point, Charlotte kind of hears this voice and the voice says, do you wish to know? And there is always, a, for me, the, I'm also fascinated by the relationship and the interconnectedness of science, magic, religion, and spirituality, and the shifting filaments um, among those domains, you know, and the crossover. So, for example, in Jane Eyre, she has this journey where she exiles herself from Mr. Rochester's mansion, and she literally is out there in the wilderness with no food and no shelter and she does hear a voice calling to her right and that always stayed with me because I have personally experienced those 
in extremis moments. And I have known, and I know there's actually clinical names for it, where you feel there's a guardian or a caring presence mm-hmm. um, makes itself, makes its presence known to you and basically says, you know what, it's, it's going to be okay. Or you're actually not alone in this big universe, right? So that kind of message, either from one's own psyche or the world's psyche or our, or our beautiful planet in all her manifestations, animate and inanimate, whatever you wish to call it, um, that actually imbues this story, right? Because there is a truth which must out. And Charlotte, with her insatiably curious mind, she says at one point, I was more curious than frightened. And I think that's the triumph and that's the energy, right? Is if we can keep our curiosity just a bit ahead of our fear, we're going to be okay. So yeah, she's a genius, actually. <laughs> we all want to be Charlotte in a way. <laughs> we do, we do. And 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 Charlotte also, she she is kind she is ridiculous too. She's funny because she's also such a literalist in many ways. She doesn't realize she's funny and she has to learn what a sense of humor is when she gets her first friend who just, you know, thinks that Charlotte is like, oh my God, like you don't even know who and what you are. You're kind of ridiculous, but I kind of love you too. And you need to see something in the world because you don't even know that you're weird. There is a secret that sits at the heart of this book. And by the heart, I mean in almost the exact center of the book. And it's it's like a, a, a slow motion revelation. You start to sort of put the pieces together over time. And and you don't have any problem knowing the first secret that that's that's unearthed in this book. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm. So I'd love to talk about that. Both sure. the secret itself, and why you're okay with us knowing that. Well, first off, just to I'll, I'll just I just want to add something a little bit to your gothic question before mm-hmm, we move to that, if that's okay, Michael. Um, Charlotte is haunted by the ghost of her dead brother, and she's not sure first at first if it's a dream or if it's a waking dream, or if it's reality. And of course she poo-poos the idea of Gothic literature because her her mm-hmm. friend Gwendolyn brings her Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and, and Charlotte just thinks they're ridiculous. I mean, imagine, imagine um, mistaking, uh, anyway, she talks about a shrieking wraith at her window, but of course the scene in the book where Charlotte does see her baby brother's face at her window in the moonlight and she does reach like thrust her hands through the glass to try to get hold of this wraith or to or to push it away is of course inspired by Wuthering Heights Mm -hmm. so yes she's she's haunted by her dead brother who is a baby now is there anything scarier than a baby ghost nothing (laughs) the comedy that sits on the other side is uh, uh, Charlotte's distaste for the Bronte sisters while she is literally sitting in the middle of a gothic novel. (laughs) It's kind of of fantastic. Yeah, she's dealing with gothic phenomena and she is looking down on gothic literature. It's ridiculous. It's not scientific. It's absolute rubbish. And of course, everything could be explained away. So thank you for appreciating that irony. And I think it is funny too. But yes, 
there is a core secret in the middle of the book and there are kind of re reverberative ripple effect secrets mm -hmm. that come out from that, right? There are the layers of secrets. Um, but the first revelation comes, I think it comes out, it, it's like, like maybe around page 75, 78, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. But that has to do with the fact that Charlotte, uh, Charlotte was born with what we would many of, uh, in many quarters would now be referred to as a quote, intersex trait, unquote. And um, in her, it takes, it takes the form of a part of her anatomy, which she calls the prickle and it's a clitoris. And it just happens to be larger than average. But um, she doesn't think this is unusual at all. She thinks all girls have one. And um, this is just the reader, the reader discovers this aspect of Charlotte's personhood, um, along with you know, every other aspect of Charlotte's person. We were in her bath and she is very scientific and therefore she's going to tell the reader, well, I did, I took this and the sponge with that. And then, you know, this part of my body. And then of course that part of my body and here's how she relates to that. And, and before the reader knows it, they are privy to something which Charlotte doesn't understand is unusual, right? So that was very important for me to invite the reader into, the, into Charlotte's normalcy because Charlotte is normal because variations of, uh, of bodies is normal. Um, and this is something about which I feel, I feel very, very adamant and passionate uh, about mm -hmm. the, spectrum, the spectrum of what is normal in terms of our bodies and our identities and... Um, why there is there has been the pretense of scientific or medical objectivity, but all it is is a tool. It's a cult. It's a tool of cultural enforcement of what is deemed to be normal, right? By mainstream culture, or by whatever authority, in, or by a kind of a paternalistic or patriarchal in, um, culture, right? Who who gets to be normal and who is pathologized? You know. What well, was it like in the mid seventies before homosexuality was removed from the World Health Organization's list of diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I came of age during a time when my parents, uh, the, one of their only regrets when I first came out was that I hadn't come out sooner while I was still a minor so that they could have gotten me quote unquote help, uh, you know? Uh -huh. so, right. I, so I go, oh, there I dodged that cannonball, you know? But uh, that's why for me, for me, it's not a spoiler right because it's her body it's normal it's uh, it, it's unusual but it's normal and i wanted uh, i very much want to um invite the reader to identify with charlotte to cherish all of her that's why i don't treat it as a spoiler mm -hmm. because i'm not fetishizing i'm not fetishizing her body part she's not exotic she's not this is not a, an exotic uh um kind of uh basically yeah i'm not I, mm -hmm. I, i'm not going to exoticize someone because of their body i'm going to say here she is everybody else has got a problem she has a problem because they do not because she's a problem 
And she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't understand when we meet her whole body, she has yet to understand mm -hmm. that the world is going to make a very, very, very big problem for her out of it. As you say, the, the other secrets reverberate from there. And do you get a certain kind of of joy as an author in the construction of that unfolding? <laughs> well, there's story, right? Which is, oh, there's so much joy in that. When I discovered, when I, you know, um, when I discovered what the story was, you know, that's really joyful. And I go, oh yeah, oh, I love, this is amazing. And then there's plotting. And oh my goodness, that is, that's where the work and the craft comes in. Mm -hmm. Because the plotting is all about how, how are we, i.e. the reader, how are we going to find out these secrets? In what order? Through, through whose point of view? Which characters are in possession of what amount of the truth at any given moment? What does each of them believe and what do they believe the others believe, right? <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's the really tricky thing. And for me, like I, I make up stories and then I go, oh God, a poor kid like me, I was never good at math and that and plotting is math. It's spatial relationships, right? Because if, if this, then that, 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 that. If that, then this, 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 right? And setting up the interconnected web of event, and uh, which of course is a metaphor for what I'm trying to write about all the time anyway, which is our our interconnectedness with one another and the planet and everything in it, right? Mm -hmm. That we are a web and you touch it anywhere and there's reverberations everywhere. So plotting that, and, and okay, I'll give you an example. I have to be I have to be highly competent at craft. And I, and I think at this point, I've had a good deal of practice and I, I am diligent and I do do my utmost to make a seamless immersive experience for the reader. So I hesitate to tell everyone just how hard I work at it. <laughs> but um, I, because there are these layers of secrets and some people who know a piece of the truth and other people who have a different piece, I, on one part of my brain, like I'm really smart and I'm figuring this out. The other part of me stays really stupid and gullible. Uh, and that is also part and parcel I know of what an artist has to be, right? Whether I'm an actor or a writer, I have to stay available to surprise. That's part of my job, right? So otherwise known as gullible, I can't tell you how often through the course of writing, plotting this book, I actually fell for the lie. And I have to go, no, 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 no. You know, that's the lie. No, no, no. That didn't happen then. That happened then. Okay. And I actually had to write out over and over again on recipe cards and, you know, stick them on a bulletin board in front of my eyes to remind myself of the true timeline. That's the true timeline right there. Okay. Everything else is a version of a lie. But I was so... I was so dumb. I was so stupid. So often I was like, oh my God, I tricked myself. But then I go, okay, if I believed that, that's great. That means it's really believable. And that's what I'm going for. But I just can't fall for it. Uh, on one hand, I, I can completely see plotting as math. On the other hand, plotting is also a manipulation of time. And 
and putting things in time. You just nailed it. Yeah. And I wonder, like, are you are you reaching or kind of using those same muscles that you use as a playwright, which is like a much more deliberate management and manipulation of a very fixed period of time? Um, or is it a is that a whole different sort of set of narrative muscles that you go to? It's it's not different. It's just uh, it, it's it's the same world of tools, mm-hmm. right? When you say time and sequence, really, you've hit on it. And often I'm writing, you know, where there's secrets, there is trauma. And where there is trauma, there is exploded sequence. There is exploded time. And there is the challenge of resequencing, right? Because that's what you do to to recover from trauma over and over and over again. You resequence and you go, that's not happening now. That happened then, right? This little shard, which is interrupting my experience of the present moment, isn't part of this present moment. It's a relic, a vestige, and it belongs elsewhere. So when I'm constructing a plot and there is trauma at the center of it and time has exploded, it is, it, it is like all picking up all these shards and fragments and trying to put them back in order over and over again. And that's what the characters are trying to do. And I know from personal experience that that's what I have to do from uh, mental wellness and my my own mm-hmm. uh, my own wellness. I won't say mental wellness, say my own wellness, because um, uh, I, I often have physical repercussions from the things that I'm working on. Right, it works it out literally through my own body, uh, not just my psyche. So um, I understand. I have an intimate uh, eye view of what it means to face the challenge of sequencing. And so I try to bring both that vulnerability and that difficulty and that hard-won expertise to plotting, right? Because I know that these characters are dealing with trying to keep their lives literally in order. So I know I know that just sounded rather esoteric, but these these are the things which are, feel very concrete to me, and I try to I turn them into into concrete story. You know, we're constantly reminded through Fane about this idea of incomplete understanding combined with rock solid certainty. You know, Charlotte is well grounded in the classical philosophers who do an excellent job of describing the world, but you know. Maybe our view of the world has refined since then. The tutor who arrives, uh, Mr. Margallo, is up to date on the latest natural philosophy of the time. But we as the reader know the gap between that science and the present day. Uh, is there a part of Fane that's all about being cautious about certainty, about assuming you have the whole story? Well, yes, because I think this period, the late 19th century, is the last hurrah of certainty. Because very early on in the century, of course, Einstein's going to publish his theory of uh, a, a special theory of relativity, et cetera, and um, um, Planck, Ken Schrodinger, et, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Certainty is going to come apart. And time, uh, speed, um, you know, you know mash, matter and energy are going to be shown to be one and the same and two very different things. And we can never know anything with certainty ever again, right at the quantum level. So all of that certainty is about to be 
this is about to disintegrate. And of course, it is, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Einstein doesn't, you know, go for a stroll one day and it and it it comes out of the blue. These ideas have been germinating for a long time. I mean, it goes back to Lucretius, but for example, James Clerk Maxwell, right? He was he was the Scottish scientist who's also talked about in the book, who was very close to describing uh, um, wave particle physics, uh, and he and he couldn't quite do it. There were a lot of people who were onto this, who were onto this idea of you can either know where something is or you can know what something is. Is light a wave or a particle? How can it be both at the same time? How can one thing be in two places simultaneously? What is spooky spooky action at a distance, I think is what Einstein called it. The idea that an, uh, an atom, for lack of a, a particle here, a change in a particle here affects another particle across the universe. Now, how does that happen? And it, and it does happen. It's scientifically proven that it does happen. And then there's the mysteries of epigenetics, which just seems like child's play compared to all that weird stuff. But the certainty, right? Uh, and then, of course, Dr. Chambers saying, we're going to create certainty. Nature's lines are blurred, and that's going to drag us back. That's going, we're going to devolve as a species. You know, there's eugenics. It's the rise mm -hmm. of eugenics at this time as well, which is going in an opposite direction to the uncertainty, right? Eugenics wants to create certainty because it is certain of what and who is superior in terms of race and sex, etc. right? Uncertainty is saying, no, no, variation and uncertainty is the way of nature. And that's our salvation. That's the way of the world, right? And of course, both extremes are probably going to meet at some point. But the idea that we can be certain who is male, who is female, and how they should behave depending on what class they're in. And, uh, and, and the, also the invention of race, right? And the invention of racial differences, and et cetera. We'd call it racial profiling now, or just plain old racism. All of that, all of these strict categories, um, which are, are gasps toward a certainty, which is in fact our enemy, right? There were parts of this book that feel almost written to be read aloud. There are passages in dialect. There are characters who mishear or misremember, listen to accents they can't understand, and, and some really fantastic dialogue and back and forth exchanges. Um, I've heard you say before that you know, being a playwright and being a novelist kind of come from a similar place to you. In that there's you know there's an audience on the other end that's that's always receiving. I'm I'm interested in how that extends to how you hear your characters, how you imagine their speech or their exchanges as uh, as they're going down onto the page. Well, I think there's not a line that I've ever written in a novel that I haven't spoken aloud before I'm satisfied with it, because. I always feel like there's something has to work rhythmically. There is a shorter, there's a shorter route, I think, between the ear and the soul or the heart than there is between the eye and, and the core of, of, of oneself, right? Between the eye and the heart. If language is alive and the rhythm, it, the meaning of it, the meaning of words resides 
resides in the rhythm as well as the literal meaning, right? That's why so often if a character uses, you know, quote unquote, big words, words with Latin and, and, and French uh, romance language roots, that's going to say one thing about that character. And then there are going to be characters and many, many places in the book where a kind of uh, older Anglo-Saxon Germanic uh, um, choices are made, are, that I make, right? Words of fewer syllables, automatopoeic words, words that sound like what they are, you know? Um, and uh, like cow, earth, that's e even, I mean, let's, okay, let's not, let's not digress into etymology, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but yes, rhythm is integral to meaning. Mm -hmm. well, there has to be the right kind of music and the right kind of rhythm. And sometimes there are characters who you just know they are resisting rhythm they are they are suppressing rhythm in order to insist upon rational meaning and rational meaning alone and of course that too is a passionate choice that too is an emotional choice much as that person might be trying to drain emotion out of everything by suppressing rhythm and being only precise in their language um so yeah i don't think my a book works unless it works on the ear and i'm actually having a chance to kind of revisit that now because I'm in the midst of recording the audiobook of Fane. And uh, so, yes, there are, and there are all these accents and I'm trying to get a little, little flavor of each mm -hmm. um, without, without going overboard and making it into a kind of a distraction for the listener. One just wants a flavor. So yes, it's rhythm. And that tells you so much about what's going on and about who it is who's speaking, even when it's the book speaking, you know, sometimes the book speaks in a very lyrical, um, very emotional, impassioned way. And sometimes it speaks in a really clinical way. And that will tell you a lot about where we're at in the story, you know? The other media you work in, acting, theater, time you spent in film and television, those are all capital intensive largely collaborative arts where a lot of people have to want something to happen in order for it to happen is there is there a freedom to sitting down to write a novel yes i mean i get to be in charge of all the toys it's true um <laughs> <laughs> that said that said i find the tr the two media really nourish one another because Spending years alone in a great big world, um, for example, you know, spending spending years making fame, and not really being able to share that with anyone, um, you know, at a certain point, I'm able to share it with my editor, and I go, thank God. Um, but it's true with theater; it's so much more. It, it's it's collaborative from the get go. And there are workshops and then there are rehearsals and I'm, I'm, it's alive and I'm writing it on the fly and I'm writing in response to the staging and uh, I'm partnering with the director, the actors, the designers, the technicians, and it is marvelously social. And I love that. It, I just, you know, I was parched for it when it came time to go to Stratford last spring and start working on Hamlet 911. Um, Yes, it was a it was a great relief. I felt I'm back in the land of the living. I'm I'm no longer alone with 
well, I'm not alone, but I'm I'm the only kind of creature like me in this big fictional world of fame, <laughs> right? And it's not like I can go up for drinks with my collaborators mm-hmm. afterwards and say, oh, hey, well, how about that moment? What should we do here? No. <laughs> and Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Michael, you've been so kind. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your uh, sharing me with your readers and sharing your readers with me. I really appreciate it. I have been speaking with Anne-Marie MacDonald. Her new novel is Fame. Find it and the other books we've talked about at Kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes. Subscribe to Kobo and Conversation wherever you're listening to us now so you never miss an episode and leave us a review or stars or anything else that lets us know you're out there. It helps other book-loving people find our show. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.